Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm John Fusco. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. I'm Charles Hain. On this week's show, our New York Film Festival preview, another new Panasonic full-frame mirrorless camera to pay attention to, and how you should put a fish in your film. <laughs> and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. <laughs> All together for the first time in a very long time. Yeah, like early August since the four of us have been in the same room. I'd say, yeah, maybe in even New more. Yo all together. In New Yo. So what's what's new? What's been happening? Uh, anyone have any children? <laughs> I my wife gave birth. Oh, oh. And I have a three week old beautiful baby daughter, Iona Tui Hain, and she is magical, and I am not sleeping. But my wife, I, my wife gets less sleep than me. Okay. I just want to make that very clear. So, yes. Anything I say that's incoherent in this podcast is 100% my baby's fault. Wow. She's, She's only three weeks old and you're already She's already been the blamed baby. for That's why you have a baby, to have an excuses for your own oh, uh, yeah. oh, inadequacies. I, I can't make it to that party. I got to take care of the baby. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a giant conspiracy. <laughs> but it's like your wife's still just pregnant. You're like, oh, yeah, I know, but still, <laughs> she needs help. And Liz, how's your new job? Oof. Busy, fun, cool. I'll have some announcements about it soon. It feels like a baby. I'm exhausted, too. Does your new job cover you and spit up and poo? <laughs> that is none of your business, <laughs> well, Charles. Uh, people request payment is their business. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. And Eric, how is Suspiria? Oh, I, oh, yeah, we saw Suspiria yesterday. I enjoyed it quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, me uh, too. I thought, yeah, we went to a screening yesterday of it, and it's, it's a very literal interpretation, I would say. It's very... Uh, Spoken out. If right. if the original was too uh, opaque for you, I think this one really. It's like a little on the nose. Is a breakdown step by step of how to conduct witchcraft. Um, like, yeah, I don't want to say two more online, but uh, I, I but I did like it quite a bit. Six acts, an epilogue, and uh, you know what you're getting when you're introduced with that at the beginning. I'd say. Yeah, I mean, there's much more of like a tangible idea of what's happening in it from the very beginning. I yes. think in this one compared to the original. Um, but yeah, it's it's really it's got a lot of German something. history. If yeah, that's what you're into as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, if there's one thing I need more of in it, in my horror movies, it's history. Let me tell you, you will be thinking about Badermeinhof for hours after seeing Suspiria. Because really, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, I was always disappointed I didn't learn more about Texas in and the movies. Texas politics, right? Like, who yeah. was the mayor? Like, why were they cannibals? Did it Sam have something Houston, to do with the Mexican American War? None of that's there. Not in it's it. Literally, Not in just it. turning people into chili. No, yeah. Were they doing it for, to save the Alamo? Well, like, what happened? So, Suspiria will give you your history fix and Andrew Witch fix, yeah, and Witch fix, yeah, yeah, nice. and sandwich fixins. Oh yeah. <laughs> So it's good. It is very good. It's worth checking out. It comes down in a few weeks. And Suspiria <laughs> isn't playing at the New York Film Festival this year, but the New York Film Festival does have its official start date tomorrow night, and the opening night film is none other than Yorgos Lanthimos's The Favorite. Um, and it seems like Tiff just ended, but we've actually been covering New York Film Festival for like a week now even prior to the festival starting. There are 30 films in total that play the festival on the main slate, which the Film Society of Lincoln Center has put on every year for the past 56 years. And we all love the festival because it's right here in our backyard. It takes place at multiple theaters throughout the beautiful Lincoln Center complex, which also holds the Metropolitan Opera House, the New York Philharmonic, and a little art school named Juilliard. Other film screening include Roma, If Beale Street Could Talk, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Burning, Wildlife and High Life. 
New York Film Festival is a non-competitive festival. Instead, it acts almost more like a greatest hits of the year's festival circuit. This year's got winners from Berlin, Cannes, Venice, TIFF, and even Sundance, which happened all the way back in January. Every marquee festival that you could think of is represented here. Kent Jones, the festival's director, once said, We have a very simple directive. Pick some movies that we like the best. Period. So, in that regard, it's not an industry festival. There are no world premieres. Relative to other major festivals, New York Film Festival is pretty intimate. Some perspective, Toronto had 255 features this year, Sundance had 123, and in comparison, New York Film Festival, with all of their features, has around 84. And depending on where you draw the line, on the length of a feature film, it could be even less. In addition, they also hold a number of interesting talks, including a discussion with Alfonso Coron this year, and one of my favorite events, an annual talk with a director who shares clips from films that over the years have deeply impacted their own work. Last year, I attended that event with Richard Linklater, and this year, it's Claire Denis, who directed that sci-fi fuckbox feature. Oh, another one? <laughs> no, the same one. Oh, the same yeah, one. Yeah, okay. talked about it last week on the right, show. Right, right, right. I'm getting my fuckbox movies confused. <laughs> and the fish-fucking ones. There's so many. Oh. There's so much. I went to the, that event with Jim Jarmusch two years ago at New York Film Festival, and it's like really enlightening to see how directors you know, see other work. Also good for some uh, like tips to, on movies that you need to see. Another annual tradition that I like is sharing our most anticipated films. So let's uh, let's do this. And uh, Eric, why don't you just you start this time? Okay, so I'm I'm cheating a little bit. I remember we did like a Sundance or South by preview, John, and I think you chose one that you had seen by that point. Yeah. So I'm gonna take that easy way out. Okay. Um. So it, it, I think it, all for a good reason. Uh, I could have chosen new films from, as John mentioned, Yorgos Lanthimos, Jean-Luc Godard, Claire Denis, Frederick Wiseman, Errol Morris. But I just want to recommend and encourage listeners to check out this British drama premiering in the main slate called Ray and Liz, uh, which I happened to catch recently. Uh, not Liz Nord. She's not in it. But, uh, oh, forget it. I'm not going. I know. Uh, it's about it's a photographer slash turned filmmaker Richard Billingham, and it's an artist's reckoning with both his personal and professional past. Ray and Liz are interpretations of his parents and it's a re-examining of his early photographs of his parents as well as a revisiting of the turbulent household he grew up in. Filmed in England's black country, Billingham's debut feature is a triptych steeped in naturalism and recounting his parents' tumultuous relationship at three various stages throughout their lives. While the wraparound story is set in his father Ray's, who is an elderly, drunken, lonely man, insect-infested single room, the narrative drifts back to two separate periods in Richard's life, one involving him as a little boy and another with him as a teenager. Richard's mother, Liz, is foul-mouthed and angry, and one character remarks that she has a bit of Nazi in her. Uh, she's really angry. Uh, while his father, Ray, is obedient and means well. Nevertheless, the couple struggles to make ends meet, eventually leading to the family being torn apart. Uh, it's very, it's some parts very brutal. It's funny. It's brutally funny. Uh, this unsentimental view of a son's wrestling with memories of his parents, as seen through a very cool 16 millimeter lens, is intensely watchable, unfolding like extended scenes from a stage play in the film based on photographs Billingham took, as I mentioned, of his real life parents. When Richard's younger brother embraces his friend's mother while being offered a place to stay for the night, the emotional payoff you didn't realize was coming hits hard. Uh, this, as I mentioned, is in the main slate, and I feel like it'll kind of get overlooked. Uh, there aren't a lot of British dramas playing the New York Film Festival, but I was, I watched it just because it premiered at TIFF, so I wanted to see it. Uh, 
for that occasion, and I was really taken by it. So Ray and Liz, I'm sure there are still tickets for that one if you'd like to check it out. It's a pretty moving experience. Well, since you uh, cheated, I uh, will also cheat, (laughs) and I'll say that mine is no doubt 100% the favorite, which I also initially identified way back in January as one of my top three for 2018. Uh, Lanthimos is no stranger to New York Film Festival and is making his triumphant return this year after an award-winning stint at Venice with what some are calling his, quote, most accessible film to date, which is odd because I predicted as much when we wrote that article saying, quote, could this be the first film that Yorgos Lanthimos makes that isn't really fucking weird? The Greek auteur finds himself facing a much wider audience after the surprising commercial success of both The Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer. The Favorite may be his most palpable film yet, and if not, it will certainly be his largest in scale. The Favorite is, in fact, a period drama, another English period drama, I okay, guess, but kind not of, right? it's I mean, by a Greek director. Yeah, and stars Emma Stone. Yeah. And, yeah. Yep. But, um,. It's a period drama about two noble women who jockey for power and influence at the court of England's Queen Anne in the early 18th century. The key players in the triangle for the Queen's attention will be played by Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, who are both already getting award buzz, but the Queen herself, Olivia Colman, is the one who is being outright praised for her performance. We'll be covering this one extensively and hopefully getting Lanthimos and his DP on the podcast or one or the other. We'll see, so keep an eye out. Cool. Well, I haven't seen my choice yet, so I can legitimately say most anticipated. Um, I'm so excited. Well, I haven't oh. seen mine. Have you seen yours? I've seen mine. Oh, oh well, I you thought you were really saying cheated. you were cheating. Oh, no, no. I literally cheated. No, I'm yeah. seeing it on Friday. I'm oh. very excited. Well, then I, too, am excited about one I haven't seen, um, which is the follow-up to Barry Jenkins' Oscar-winning Moonlight. This one is called If Beale Street Could Talk, and it's having its U.S. premiere at the festival which is especially cool because it'll be the first time that this festival screens a film at the historic Apollo Theater in Harlem. This adds to the excitement because the film itself is set in the Harlem neighborhood in the 70s. Um, It's based on a novel of the same name by James Baldwin, who himself lived in Harlem for some of his life. And the film I saw about him at this same festival a couple years ago, I Am Not Your Negro, was one of the most powerful docs in recent memory. Now, we know Jenkins does well with adapted material, as Moonlight was also adapted from a play. In this story, a couple of childhood friends, Fanny and Tish, fall in love as adults, and Tish gets pregnant with Fanny's child as he is falsely accused of a crime and sent to prison. The cinematography looks gorgeous, which isn't a surprise, as it was shot by James Laxton, who won an Ind- Independent Spirit Award for Best Cinematography for Moonlight. I got chills from the trailer alone, and I think it's going to be a very powerful film. And I mentioned that we may be getting Lanthimos and company on the podcast, but you can also look forward to interviews with Stephen Yoon on Burning, Paul Dano on Wildlife, and more over the next coming weeks. Our interview lineup keeps getting more and more stacked this fall. We've, we're pretty lucky to have gotten some of the guests that we've had. Including uh, the one we put up this past Monday, which yeah. was a New York Film Festival tie-in. Yeah, the Image Book is also playing at the New York Film Festival. Uh, if you haven't listened to my interview with Fabrice, Fabrice, He's from the he's, Bronx. He pronounced it like yeah, he's from the Bronx. <laughs> he pronounced it like three different ways, and it confused me. He was like, "It's Fabrizio, it's Fabrice, oh. it's Fabrice." So I'm sticking with Fabrice. Fabrice. <laughs> it's Fabrice. Yeah, for Fabrice. He smelled great too. <laughs> he did smell great. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's a really good podcast, I think, and uh, you should all listen to it if you haven't had a chance yet.
Sweet. Well, we've been talking recently about different organizations putting their money where their mouths are in terms of gender parity in the industry. Et voila! Now France has joined the party. Last weekend, the French cultural minister announced a state funding bonus for productions in which the director and key crew members are women. The initiative will kick off next year, which is essentially in a few months. It operates around an eight-point system, awarding points for having females in various key roles. A production becomes eligible for a bonus of up to 15% of its expected state funding allocation once it's achieved at least four points. This is the first points-based financial incentive aimed at improving filmmaker gender parity in Europe, but doubtfully the last. Ultimately, the minister said, I believe in financial incentives. When things do not change on their own or too slowly, it's up to us to change them. And since I don't know how to say mic drop in French, I will simply say merci beaucoup. Eric, do you know how to say mic drop in French? Uh, the love the microphone. Whoa. Yeah, that yeah. sounded Italian, but uh, yeah, No, know, I'm Italian, and that was definitely French. That was definitely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't say many. Actually, most of my French I know from Godard titles, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Un, you know, Petit Soldat. He doesn't have mic drop in any of his movies? No, you would think that'd be at least one. Maybe that's the next one. Notre Musique. I'll I'll let him know our thoughts. Uh, And speaking of female filmmakers, not Godard, but, you know, the other French female filmmakers, we've got a pretty cool story out of Kenya featuring Wanori Kaihu's can favorite, Rafiki. Uh, The film was originally banned in its home country due to its depiction of a lesbian love story. But in order to qualify for a foreign language Oscar, it has to screen theatrically in its home country for seven consecutive days. Well, the filmmaker decided to sue the Kenya Film Classification Board, and last week she won. The Kenyan High Court lifted the ban on the film, and Kayu and her team are booking screenings in Nairobi. Also, I am apologize if I'm butchering your last name there, but I give you much respect. Interestingly, according to BuzzFeed, the High Court decision comes as Kenyans await a potentially landmark ruling on the constitutionality of punishing same-sex intercourse with up to 14 years in prison. And once again, we see that art and politics are intimately intertwined all over the world. And finally, in headlines, if you listen to this show, you know I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and the producer of the original movie has now gone to a galaxy far, far away. Gary Kurtz died on Sunday at age 78. He's largely credited for bringing the film to mass audiences. According to Variety, Kurtz had championed Star Wars through multiple drafts and helped Lucas navigate 20th Century Fox's lack of enthusiasm for a movie that they dismissed as a B-picture. So, generations of geeks, thank you for your work, Mr. Kurtz. Rest in peace. And now, on to tech news. So, the biggest tech news this week is more full-frame mirrorless camera news. Uh, With Panasonic rolling out a full-frame mirrorless camera, uh, the S1 and then the S1R, which follows hot on the heels of the Canon and Nikon mirrorless announcements from a couple weeks ago. So... There's some really cool stuff about this. They have a sensor that they designed and they are manufacturing, which is great because like 90% of the sensors in the world are made by Sony. So it's always fun when other people dip their toe into making sensors as they should. And they're using the L mount from Leica, which is super interesting because Canon uses a proprietary mount. Nikon uses a proprietary mount. Sony uses a proprietary mount. But Leica, Panasonic, and Sigma have all teamed up to push the L-mount as a open standard full-frame mirrorless lens mount, which means they're going to get a lot of support from Sigma, who makes very popular, affordable full-frame lenses. Panasonic will be using it. Leica, which none of us can afford, will be using it. And maybe, like, if the GH5 is any indication, Olympus will probably use it too if they do one. I always like open standards. So we are excited to see the three of them teaming up for 
uh, a full-frame mirrorless lens mount standard. Panasonic, interestingly, had a really huge hit with their GH line, but fans of those cameras, because it has a really small sensor, are not going to be able to use those lenses with the new bigger S1 and S1R. So, like, Canon and Nikon users who have a mirrored Canon or Nikon are going to be able to move over pretty easily to their new mirrorless cameras, but if you're, like, already a Panasonic user, it's going to be a big ask to upgrade your camera and all your glass all at once. It's really exciting that at this point we have all the major manufacturers except Fujifilm having full-frame mirrorless, but this particular Panasonic is more likely to be for, like, new Panasonic users, and I suspect there's still going to be a lot of people who keep their GH5, and if there's ever a GH6, around. Um, hopefully this also means that we're going to be seeing a full-frame Veracam. Panasonic is super popular at the high end, but unlike Sony and Alexa and RED, Panasonic doesn't have a full-frame, like, cinema camera yet, so hopefully this means since they designed and manufactured the sensor themselves, we will see a full-frame Veracam sometime soon. We don't have any inside word on that. This is just me. Is there, like, a term for, like, specu-pushing? Like, I'm speculating and also trying to push them into doing it? Prognosticating. Prognosticating. I'm not trying to bully you, Panasonic, into a full-frame cinema camera, but I am trying to, like, Predict it often enough it happens. Predict a boasting. Anyway, Fujifilm <laughs> also rolled out a new medium format camera for only $4,500, which is interesting. It seems like Fujifilm is like, we're not going to do full frame. We're just going to go straight to medium format, which is even bigger, which is like, bold choice, Fujifilm. And $4,500 is not that much more than like the Sony full frame mirrorless were when they came out a couple years ago. But this is really not aimed at filmmakers. It only does 1080p video. All the lenses only open to a four, which isn't a big deal for... Um, stills people because you can always use a longer shutter, but obviously in motion we can't, so we like lenses that open to like a 2 or a 1.4, and so it doesn't seem like the Fujifilm medium format is really targeted at us. But I bet soon there'll be like a a Fuji medium format for filmmakers. That's not me predictabullying. That's just a guess. Next up, GoPro came out with their new Hero 7, which is just a Hero 6 with better in-camera stabilization. It's like the same chip and the same sensor. It's the same anything. And then they stopped offering the session. But they have better stabilization. Like, look, the stabilization tests look cool. But for $400 in a space that's, like, getting really competitive and where GoPro's getting their lunch eaten by, like, low-cost, no-name action cameras that cost a quarter of the price, I think GoPro, like, longtime fans and loyalists were hoping more from the company that basically created the action cam marketplace. This feels a lot like treading water, and it's going to be interesting to see if they were treading water because the R&D team is like viciously working on an amazing upgrade for the Hero 8, or is it just because they like don't have an R&D team anymore? Um, remains to be seen. If you're really looking for cool in-camera stabilization, check the Hero 7 out. Otherwise, the Hero 6 is basically the same thing. Last up, Small HD is now shipping their very cool little Focus OLED monitors. First announced back at NAB, the shipping was a little late because there was a fire at the Small HD facility. It wasn't in their, like, warehouse. It was like the warehouse next door. But smoke, it spreads, it causes damage, it slowed things down. Um, as far as I know, I don't think anyone was injured, but now they're back up to pace, and we're super excited to have these monitors out in the field specifically because OLED is the first tech that finally looks right. So if you've ever been on set and you have like a director or a client who's like looking at the DIT monitor and then looking at the camera monitor and it's like, they look different. Which one do I trust? I like this one more than this one. Which one do I trust? Which has happened to pretty much every filmmaker at some point or another. The fun thing about these little OLED monitors is they're like 700 bucks and they're SDI or HDMI 
and they look the same as your DIT monitor. They're like accurate OLEDs, so you can have an on-camera monitor that looks right, which like we have all been desperately waiting on, and that's really exciting. The focus monitors are also really cool because you can use their battery to power the camera. So you only need to like change the battery on the monitor and it also powers the camera. So it's a neat little setup and the OLED one is the one we're particularly excited about. And now for Ask No Film School. This week, Ben Goger. Goger? Goher? Goger? Go Silent Jay, maybe? Goyer. Mm. Maybe he's French. Probably not. Anyways, he asks, we're shooting a short and the character's supposed to look at a fish in a fish tank. Can somebody recommend the best way to get a fish in my apartment safely? We're not sure (laughs) where to get the fish. Should we try to rent one from a pet store or find a friend with a fish that they'll let us borrow? I want to do it in a way where the fish doesn't get hurt. I worked on a film a while back where the crew unplugged a fish tank for the sound and then they plugged it back in a couple hours later, but one of the fish died. Oh my God. Yeah. No, I worked on a shoot from the producer and the director are now prominent, like they're making stuff, like they are known. And I totally remember this was like the year 2000, and they bought a bunch of fish for this shot, similar to this, and at the end of the day, they just said the PAs dump the fish tank with the fish down a storm drain. And I remember walking by and like seeing the little, and then one of the PAs just didn't have the heart to do it and snuck off set to return them to a pet store. Because he like started the pour, and he's like, I can't do this, I don't have it in me. Bless him. And that PA left the film industry. No, I just made that part up. For oh, that, for that reason. That I thought day. you were going to say has now won an Oscar. No, no, no. But like the director, the director and the producer probably did not know that the production manager was ordering people to murder the fish. But it was just funny <laughs> that they went on. It was such a like true Hollywood moment of like the vicious people willing to step on fish to get to the top yeah. versus the little PA with the heart who was like, no, I'm going to sneak off set to return them to a pet oh, store. So what should Ben do? So, Ben, that's a great question. I loved that question so much we had to answer it. And it allows us to talk about one of my favorite positions on set, which is animal rights. Wranglers. Believe it or not, there's a whole world of specialists you can hire just to make sure animals are treated properly and survive their life on set. Now, most people assume animal wranglers are just for the big animals, like when you work with a bear. Like I had a friend who shot a commercial in Indiana and the bear wrangler lost his hand on the shoot. But at least it was the bear wrangler and not like a crew member, right? That's true. That's why you hire a job. That's why you hire a bear wrangler. If you're a bear wrangler, you know that hand is like you're you, you appreciate every day you still have that hand, I think, if you choose that life. And then they flush the bear down the toilet. So <laughs> it's okay. You can't hurt anyone else. Okay, this is getting kooky. But there are animal wranglers for all animals, big and small. I worked on a shoot once with an animal wrangler for worms. And, like, she totally arrived on set. We treated those worms with tremendous respect. She made sure those worms survived. We got a beautiful close-up of the worm, Anamorphic 35, and then she took the worms away at the end. I had worms in my short, actually. Did you use an animal wrangler? I didn't wrangler? use an animal wrangler, uh, no. Did we, you end up fishing with the worms? We killed done? all of them. We decapitated. Are you serious? No. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> they got their SAG card We put them in dirt after. Yeah, and they were probably and they super were fine. <laughs> So, if you are worried about the safety of these animals, animal wranglers are fantastic for ensuring the safety of the animal on set, and your best bet to get a fish tank full of fish to set and away from set without any injuries to the fish is to hire a professional. You might be thinking, oh, hey, I'm not in New York or L.A. We don't have animal wranglers where I live. So, I once worked on a shoot in Panama, and I was sitting on set, and I saw this, like, bearded dude, shaved head, indie rock t-shirt, and I was like, oh, they brought a Silver Lake guy to set. Nope, he was the Panamanian tarantula wrangler they had hired. 
And uh, we all got to play with the tarantula on set. He was a super cool guy, but he was just like a Panamanian hipster. And um, you can find people who will wrangle animals for you anywhere. They might not be like certified professional film and television animal wranglers, but if you go looking for specialists in the animal, you will find someone who knows how to take care of them. In your case, if you're not in New York, L.A., or Chicago, I would reach out to fish fanatic groups in your area, like on Facebook or fish collectors or anything like that. There are people, I guarantee, who are really into rare fish in your town. Or even someone who runs a pet store. Yeah, I was going to say, like, contacting a pet store, something like that. They will know their best customer who would be willing. And you might not even have to pay. I've definitely heard stories of friends who are like, oh, yeah, I found this person who's really into birds. And they were like so excited that I cared about not injuring the bird that they brought the bird to set for me and we shot with it and then they took it away. You might end up having to pay. You might end up getting it for free. But obviously the fact that you care about these animals and don't want to injure them is like a very good thing to lead with when approaching fanatics and pet stores about looking for the way in which you want to rent fish for your shoot. Uh, Also, you can always offer to give them copies of the footage. Maybe they're going to be excited that their pet was on film. Cool. Thanks, Charles. And uh, thanks for your question, Ben. That was a very good question. And now we're going to move on to movies opening this week. On October 2nd, debuting on Amazon Prime Instant is Never Going Back, which actually premiered at Sundance earlier this year and is the debut feature from writer-director Augustine Frizzle, or Frizzell. Who knows? One of the two. Only in the movies can bad behavior be considered justifiable, and in the case of this film, there's quite a lot of that to go around. I said that it was the scatological meets the pathological, which I thought was uh, very good. pretty much the most clever thing I've thought of all year. Uh, in this Texas-set story of two teenage girls who live together, they get high together, and they work together at a dead-end diner that pays them just enough to cover the rent they share with their about-to-be 17-year-old Jesse's drugged-out brother, Dustin. And life isn't great, but it could be worse. And so to celebrate Jesse, who's one of the two leads' impending 17th birthday, the other lead, Angela, books a surprise trip to the beaches of Galveston to be paid for with their rent money. And the two women will just pick up a few extra shifts at the restaurant, they figure, to cover the rent before it's due. And then someone breaks into the apartment, robs the place, police officers show up. They get thrown into jail, and the story only kicks off from there. It's pretty crazy. Uh, It's kind of a road trip movie, but it stays very local. Uh, But you'll see they go from location to location. It's a lot of fun. And let's just say that one of the biggest running gags involves an impending bowel movement. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, it kind of depends on if that's, if that's not your thing, but I mean, if you're willing to watch a movie that has that in there, you know, the kind of movie you're getting into. So it's not for everyone, but I had an enjoyable time with this one and it's on Amazon this Tuesday. And on September 28th on Netflix, you can check out Hold the Dark. I got a chance to catch Jeremy Saulnier's latest movie at TIFF a couple weeks ago, and I'm a big fan of his previous work, Blue Ruin and Green Room, and this movie is just as gripping, and believe it or not, it's also probably his darkest film to date. Uh, Every one of his movies is pretty dark, but this one holds the dark pretty well. It features strong performances from its leads Alexander Skarsgård, Riley Keough, and Jeffrey Wright. Wright plays a writer named... Russell Kaur, who, after the deaths of three children suspected to be killed by wolves, is hired by the mother of a missing six-year-old boy to track down and locate their son in the Alaskan wilderness. There's a shootout film in this movie that is one of the most epic I've ever seen, and it speaks to Saulnier's mastery of what he calls the quote-unquote 
score score. And that'll be something I talk about with him in about a few hours or maybe more like 40 minutes when I sit down with him and uh, record an interview for next week's podcast. If you simply can't wait until then, go to the site and check out a panel on horror writing I wrote up that he was on called How to Write a Thrilling Horror from Silence of the Lamb Screenwriter and more. And on HBO on September 29th, you can catch Phantom Thread. This is one of my favorite movies of 2017, though I saw it alone this year on Valentine's Day, which was maybe the best decision I've made all year. Paul Thomas Anderson, of course, directed the film, which supposedly includes Daniel Day-Lewis's final performance. Lewis plays Reynolds Woodcock, a renowned dressmaker whose fastidious life is disrupted by a young, strong-willed woman, Alma, who becomes his muse and lover. I don't know how to describe this film. I think it's somewhere between the master and punch drunk love tonally, and it's just an absolute beauty to watch. And what seems to be a trend of late, PTA acted as cinematographer himself on the piece, and the result is really incredible. Of course, it won an Oscar for costume design, but in my opinion, it should have won several more, especially for Radiohead's own Johnny Greenwood, who was absolutely robbed for his score. Eric actually wrote up a nice video essay about Greenwood and whether or not he should be considered a score auteur in his own right, and you can read that on the site. Score auteur? I like that. And we have on the right. Gore, gore, gore score? Gore score and score auteur. Yep. (laughs) Also, particular about Phantom Thread is many of the directors who are like direct DPing are doing it digitally, which is like all well and good, and it's still cinematography, and digital cinematography is fantastic. But you can see what you get on a properly calibrated monitor, so it makes it easier to make decisions. PTA, first off, is very clear. He was like, I was not the cinematographer on this. But there wasn't another cinematographer, so he shot it himself. And on film, which on set on film, you don't get a preview monitor that shows you exactly. Like, you have to understand what it is going to look like. You have to be, be able to pre-visualize. And it is gorgeous. Yeah, it's a beautiful movie. And out now in theaters is Love, Gilda. This documentary looks back on the life of legendary comedian Gilda Radner. It's told in her own words, weaving together recently discovered audio tapes, interviews with her friends, rare home movies, and diaries read by modern-day comedians, including Amy Poehler. I've heard amazing things about this movie. People, you know, they laughed, they cried, it was better than Cats. Our contributor Rafi Rivero sat down with director Lisa DiPolito to discuss the four-and-a-half-year process of making the film. In it, she talks about giving your editor the freedom they need to work. She says, quote, There are 30 hours of interviews, 60 hours of audio tapes, five years of Saturday Night Live. I don't think you need to sit in the edit room every day with an editor. I think you have to give the editor a lot of freedom. When Anne came in, Anne, I'm assuming, is the editor, (laughs) um, there already was a rough assembly. I knew the materials inside and out, so there was a lot in place. I was also going for the emotional element of the film. Anne was looking for the why and the materials to, to substantiate that. That was the advantage of having someone new come to work on the film. End of quote. You can check the full interview out on the site. We will link to it in the podcast post. And now moving on to grant deadlines. The ScreenCraft Film Production Fund has a deadline on October 1st. It's brought to you by ScreenCraft and Bondit. If you've got a short script or a short film, feature film, documentary, or series pilot at the early stages of production, this fund could now score you up to $30,000 in financing and production services. Every six months, up to two filmmakers are awarded this production grant, and uh, the winners are announced six weeks after each final deadline. And then moving right along to festival deadlines, The Short Shorts Film Festival has a deadline on September 30th. This takes place in Tokyo, Japan from June 3rd to the 23rd, 2019. 
It started in 1999 and became an Academy of Motion Picture Art and Sciences accredited festival in 2004, which means that the winner of the Short Shorts Grand Prix is eligible to receive an Academy Awards nomination. The Best Shorts Award winner wins 600,000 yen, which is approximately $5,400 U.S. But do you need to show up in Short Shorts to be eligible to win? That's a good question. I think it helps, actually. Yeah. It's a short festival that goes 20 days. I call that uh, oxymoron. Oh, and with a deadline of October 1st is the Cleveland International Film Festival, which takes place March 27th through April 7th, 2019 in Cleveland, Ohio. 41 years running, it's held by the Cleveland Film Society, and it's been recognized as one of the 50 leading film festivals in the world by IndieWire, as well as the USA Today runner-up for best film festival in the country. They accept web series and new media content free of charge. There are tons of great cash prizes, including the Roxanne T. Mueller Award for Best Feature Film, which is $15,000, Real Women Direct Award, which is a grand prize of $10,000, the, my favorite, Central and Eastern European Competition for Post-Soviet Bloc Narrative Feature, and you get $10,000 for that. So again, if you've been sitting on that film of a post-Soviet bloc, Apply by Monday. Suspiria uh, could be in that one. It, it could. It yeah. could. Uh, check out the site to see all the prizes and categories because they're extensive and it covers a lot of ground. And the Athens International Film and Video Festival has a deadline on October 1st. This is the early bird deadline. It takes place April 8th to the 14th, 2019 in Athens, Ohio. This is its 46th year running. It's an Academy Award qualifying festival in the short narrative and animated short categories, and there are cash prizes of $1,000 US that are awarded by guest jurors for feature documentary, short documentary, experimental, feature narrative, short narrative, and animation. And now for weekly woo-woo. Or <laughs> wisdom. You gotta, you gotta admire our. Uh... It's, it's getting worse. I don't know, but we just uh, talked about the director-editor relationship in Love Gilda, and it sounds like you've got some words of wisdom about that same relationship uh, De- in this segment. Definitely, we didn't did not plan this. Um, the Old Man in the Gun, which is David Lowry's latest film, is opening soon, uh, and. In the film, Robert Redford may actually be having his last starring role. Uh, He's 82 years young, and he said it may be his final uh, movie. We'll see. Uh, And he stars as Forrest Tucker, who's an obsessive bank robber who's just so damn charming. So he just keeps getting away with everything because it's Robert Redford, and he robs banks, and damn that rascal. Um, I spoke with the editor, Lisa Zeno-Churgan, about the, as Liz mentioned, editor-director relationship, and I, I thought this was pretty interesting about how she worked with David Lowry. Quote, Everybody is different. There are some directors who want to stay in the room and sort of hang out. David, however, would come in and we would review material and I'd take notes, and then he'd go away, then come back, and we'd go over stuff. Sometimes I'd just send him stuff on frame IO, and he had certain commitments to other things. And you know, when we were on Pete's Dragon, his previous feature, he had to go and do some additional shooting in New Zealand, and we were able to communicate and cut from one side of the world to another. I sometimes cut by telephone. When there was a sound montage in Bob Roberts, a film that was made in 1992, I believe, I would call the director, Tim Robbins, and would hold the receiver up to the speaker so that he was able to make comments. Whatever works, as they say. Some directors want to be in the room all the time. 
I think a lot of them find it really tedious, however, to come back and then you show them all the stuff, take more notes, and then they go away again. Whatever process works best for you, you should do, because it is a process. That's definitely one of the beauties of the things that I have learned. It's the process. The process needs to adapt to whomever you're working with. Um, and in the interview, she also talks about learning Adobe Premiere Pro for The Old Man and the Gun. She's more of an avid user, so she has been nominated for an Oscar and has worked on so many films, but she's still learning herself. Uh, and be very adaptable if you can be. So I thought it was pretty word-wise, uh, wise words of wisdom. Totally agree. Good one, Eric. So while John was downing maple syrup up north, I was at a couple festivals of my own, and so I have to give some related shout-outs before we sign off. Um, first of all, to Camden International Film Festival, where Sierra Urich's Junum, or Junum, won the Points North pitch. The pitch was especially cool this year because it had a new twist, live crowdfunding from the audience, so that every film walked away with a share of the cash. I really hope that other pitches follow suit in the future. It was a great way to engage an audience and to make sure that everyone who participates gets a little something, even if they don't get a main funder out of it. Is it a cash? Yeah, like, people were just throwing auctioning? cash on like, the stage. Was it was kind of like at a strip club. It was cool. It was very interactive. Wow. I like it. Um, no, it was like um, you could you could pledge uh, via uh, cell phone. Gotcha. Yeah, really cool. And while we're on the topic of alternative funding, this past weekend was the inaugural Studio Fest, the festival with a built-in financing model that I've been talking about throughout the year. How it worked was that five finalist short filmmakers were chosen and five finalist screenwriters were chosen. And then we all went up to an absolutely gorgeous spot in the Catskill Mountains where we had a live reading of the finalist screenplays and screenings of two short films from each director. Then we, the judges, gave our two cents, and the producers who put on the festival, Jess Jacqueline and Charles Irving Beale, chose a winner from each category who will now get to work with them over the next year to make a $50,000 micro-budget feature. So unlike other festivals, the winners here, namely writer Matthew Servillo and director Anna Mikami, walk away with financing and collaborators for their next film. It's really genius, and I can't wait to see what comes out of it. I think this is a model that can and should be replicated. And um, the producers of the festival and who are going to produce this film are just two filmmakers themselves who had this idea. So if anyone's kind of turned on by this, check out their site. I'm sure they'd be willing to share sort of how they put it together. Finally, if you're out in L.A., a documentary that I loved at Tribeca this year is the closing night film on Friday of the uh, L.A. Film Festival. It's called United Skates, and it's about roller rink culture in the U.S., and the coolest part is that there's a roller skating after party at World on Wheels. If I were in town, I would so be there. Sounds kind of dangerous. I don't know. Roller skating? Yeah, I think just in general. You know, I've, I've actually never roller skated in my life. I've only tried ice skating once, but... Roller skating is like an order of magnitude easier than ice skating, for the record. And also, Eric only leaves his house for this podcast, for the record. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't even know what roller skating is. <laughs> And on next week's show, you can hear that podcast I do with Jeremy Saulnier on Hold the Dark, which I'm about to leave for and uh, hopefully make on time. It's going to be a good one. He's great. Uh, I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John I'm at Eric Lures. I'm at Liz Film. I'm at Charles Hain on the Twitters and the Instagrams. And if you like the show, you can subscribe to the No Film School podcast on whatever podcast platform you so choose. And uh, if you really like it, you can rate us on whatever platform that is. Um, and we'll see you on Monday. And don't forget to check out all the articles that we've referenced in this podcast at nofilmschool.com. Bye.